Welcome to Jesus Unmasked, an invitation to join a search for the living Christ in scripture and our lives. I'm Lindsay Paris Lopez, writer for the Raven Review, aspiring peacemaker and aspiring follower of Jesus. And I am Adam Erickson, writer at the Raven Review and pastor in the United Church of Christ. This is episode 29 for the seventh Sunday in Easter. In this episode, we discuss John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. In Jesus Unmasked, we seek to remove the masks of exclusive theology and violent cultural lenses that obscure the truth that Jesus is unconditional love. In the unmasked face of Jesus, there is hope, acceptance, and forgiveness that frees us from fear, that we may live into our fullest selves as reflections of God's love. We explore scripture through the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and we use the Common Lectionary. Lindsay, this is episode 29. Next time is the Big 3-0, the Big 30. Yeah, and that will be our Pentecost episode, so maybe we can have a little bit of Holy Spirit revelry on that day. That'll be fun. Fire. It was always fun. Yes. Do you remember the show Beavis and Butthead? Did you watch that where they would go fire, fire, fire? No, no, I did not watch that. You were too good for Beavis and Butthead. I was too good for Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) Actually, I, I, I mean, I, um, yeah, I honestly thought that. I honestly thought I'm better than this when I would turn on the TV and I would turn away from that. Yes. Oh, that was like my high school stupid MTV shows was just horrible. Brought me down. You you are a much better person because you did not watch Beavis and Bud. So good on you. I had my own stupid shows, but I just never let myself sink that low. So Okay, good. (laughs) Well, uh, next time we'll be talking about fire, fire, fire. Uh, Okay, I'm done. I'm done. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Jesus being exalted and we're talking about eternal life. So that'll be fun. Oh, fantastic. So this is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's very mysterious stuff that Jesus is talking about. Very weird language. It's hard to understand. So I hope that you yeah. can make sense of it. <laughs> we'll make sense of it together. We'll break it uh, down for our listeners together. Sounds good. Like we said, this is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. So what the heck does that mean? Yeah, there's a lot to dive into here, isn't there? Um, Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, Right before this, Jesus says that the hour is coming when they will be scattered, when they will be like spread throughout. And this is because of persecution. Jesus's farewell discourse, what the scholars call. And Jesus is basically saying goodbye to his disciples because uh, he knows that he's about to die. Yeah, this is his final speech to them. These are his final words before the crucifixion. And they are also used in the lectionary the Sunday before Pentecost. And actually, there's a whole nother lectionary for Ascension Day, for the day that Jesus goes up to be with the Father forever. But you could make an Ascension Day service out of this text. So when Jesus talks before his crucifixion about being glorified, he's talking about his death, and he's talking about the time when he is going to die and draw the world to himself and reveal his glory in his death. And then he's also, it it can also be used to talk about his ascension to heaven after the resurrection when he goes up to be with the Father in forever in glory. And so the same text comes chronologically before his death, but we use it after his resurrection. And so glory going to death and glory going to the Father become the same thing, or the same text can be used for those things. It's just so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. How could, when Jesus says the, how, the hour has come, he's talking about the hour when he is going to the cross and that's where he will be glorified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything we understand about glory is being subverted here. Everything we understand about being exalted or being, you know, it, it's going to be high and lifted up, but He's going to be high and lifted up on a cross. That's in supposed, shame. Yes, in shame. That's supposed to be a warning to everyone. See this person here. Don't be like him. Don't be like this person because you will be stripped and beaten and brutally murdered and left for birds to peck out your eyes or something. I mean, it's just a really gruesome form of death. Anyone seeing it would want to stay far, far away from not only the one who was crucified, but any kind of behavior that would get you crucified as well. So Jesus is subverting everything we've ever thought about shame and glory and 
So humiliation. What, what is glorious about the cross, the hour that has come? Well, I think what is really glorious about the hour that has come is that humanity has been blinded for so long according to a lie that God is with the triumphant, that God is with the winners, and all of our victims, the victims of all of human history and the present as well, mm -hmm. all of the victims that we have thought have died because they deserved it, anyone who's been killed, any any victim of capital punishment or any enemy that we kill in war, we've always thought that person deserved it. And we have seen God on our side against the ones we have killed. And for God in flesh to go to the cross is to tell all of humanity, you've gotten it all wrong from the very beginning. I am not in the one who lifts the sword. I'm not in the one who drives the nails. I am not in the one who cracks the whip. I am the victim of all of this. And I'm going to show you forever that God is the one that we persecute. God is the one we kill whenever we kill another human being, whenever we harm another human being. God is with them. And so it is glorious for humanity to be relieved of the lie. It's glorious for the victims. It's glorious for all the people who have suffered and who have been told you are suffering because you deserve it and this is God's will against you. It is glorious for them. And it is glorious for the persecutors to be relieved of the lie that we have to kill each other in order to worship. I mean, that, that really is a truly glorious thing. That is a breaking of chains. That is freedom. To know that we don't have to murder each other. To know that God is not a murderer or a commander of murder. God is actually the one that we're killing. I mean, it's, um, it is wonderful to finally learn that because then we can be set free of that way of living. And is that what Jesus means by eternal life? So typically when we think of eternal life, we think of what happens to us after we die. So eternal life that Jesus gave us is life in heaven. But the way that you're talking about this is much more present now than what happens to us after we die. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what Jesus meant by eternal life. In Hebrew and Judaism uh, of the first century that Jesus is obviously living in, right? They didn't think of time in the same way that we think of time. Eternal was not so much something that was going to happen in perpetuity. Eternal was much more significance. Like this mm -hmm. is the life that you live now. And it's a way, as you've been talking about, of leading us away from sacrificing one another, killing one another, into a way of that looks much more like what God actually wants in the world, which is love and compassion. And that's where I think this really 
weird language of Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. May they be one as you and I are one. There's, it really kind of shows us that Jesus, for all the incarnation language that we discuss, what it means is that if you want to know what God is like, God is like the nonviolent, loving, your enemy, Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Eternal life. Jesus says eternal life is, he gives a very, very direct definition. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that is eternal life, is relationship with God and knowing who God is. Knowing the character of God is not some big, righteous, triumphant judge who punishes with impunity and casts down the wicked and burns them all in hell or strikes them down with plagues. So to know that that's not who God is at all, to know that God is rather the crucified criminal hanging from the cross, I mean, that's an amazing thing to recognize. And once we get our understanding of just identifying God as the one on the cross, that's just step one. Step one of a relationship meeting someone and recognizing them. From there, relationship builds forever and ever, getting to know someone deeper and deeper and deeper. We have to start with the knowledge that God has been the victim of our violence because God loves us and there is nothing we can do to each other that God doesn't feel because God is so intimately connected to us. Once we have that down, then comes forever and ever and ever of getting to know the depths of who God is and what God's love really is. You know, just identifying God in the victim is the first step. And then there is an eternal, timeless process of coming deeper into relationships. So, yeah, eternal doesn't necessarily mean timeless in Hebrew. But when you think about what it takes to really get to know someone, that is infinite because our souls are infinite. And that means that we have forever and ever to keep going deeper and deeper into that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to tackle some issues in this text that are exclusive or that are often interpreted as exclusive. And that is where Jesus says things like, to give eternal life to all you have given him or me, speaking for Jesus. And when he says, I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me. So this is often interpreted as Jesus has a select few that God has given to Jesus and the rest of humanity is screwed. Yeah, that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if you're one of those people who thought that, 
then I want to be very careful not to set myself over and against you, like not you personally, Adam, but any of our listeners, if I just say very bluntly, yeah, that's wrong. I know there are probably people who are thinking, well, that's what I thought of it as. And are you saying you're better than me? And, and I want to get into that because the whole point is to reject rivalry altogether, is to reject in-groups and out-groups altogether. And um, the minute I say, well, that's wrong, I kind of set myself up against people who, you know, it's very hard not to think in terms of rivalry. It's just so hard not to. And I mean, I have thought of it that way. I've thought of Jesus having a select few people who Jesus would save. And I've always kind of seen myself on the opposite side of the line that Jesus drew because that's the way I understood it intellectually, but I never saw myself among the saved because it confused me. Like I understood that that's what the words meant, but I didn't know that I believed them. And, you know, I've talked about this many times, how I was confused and scared and concerned about that interpretation. So I did read the words through that interpretation, through that lens at one point. And our culture certainly has made it seem like that's the way things are, like that's the way this verse is to be understood. So when I say, yeah, that's wrong, I don't want to set myself up against anyone who might have an exclusive interpretation. But I do want to make us consider that Jesus is not excluding anyone. Anytime Jesus sets himself against the world or his disciples against the world, he's not setting up in-groups or out-groups. He is setting up his way of all-inclusive love against a world that has defined itself based on a principle of exclusion, based on I know who I am because I know that I am not you and I draw a boundary and I know that we are good guys because we are not those bad guys and we know that we are our nation because we will take up arms against any other nation and we know that we are our alliance because we form a bond against those other nations who are not part of our alliance and and so on and so on jesus doesn't do any of that and when he says i do not ask on behalf of the world and when he sets himself up against the world he's actually setting himself up against that very principle of violent exclusion yeah, it's interesting because obviously John 3.16, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that God sent God's only son, right? So Jesus talks about the world in different ways. There's the world that God loves, and there's the world that Jesus has overcome. And the world that Jesus has overcome is the world that you're talking about, the way of life, the powers and principalities that Paul will talk about later. Uh, the ways of sacrifice, as you just explained. But the world that God so loved is the creation. And that is what Jesus in his life is showing us. When Jesus says, it is finished, like when I have finished the work that you have given me to do, that's like 
going back to the creation story when God says on the sixth day, finished his work on the seventh day, he rests, right? <laughs> so this is like Jesus coming into and uh, continuing creation and showing us what God truly is like in the world, which is the God of love and compassion, the God that John will talk about later, who is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's what is revealed. That's what gets finished on the cross is this final revelation that even you can kill God <laughs> among us and God will respond with, let's try something new. Let's do this again and follow me again. One of the things that's interesting about this passage in relation to this is verse six, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Who is they that Jesus is talking about here? The disciples? Because they haven't kept the word right? The disciples mm -hmm. abandon and betray Jesus the whole time. They don't right. understand what Jesus is talking about the whole time. And yet Jesus must be talking about the disciples at this moment. So their worth, their value, their being known, made known is not dependent upon them getting it or understanding it correctly. Their value is just in what? Being human, being in relationship with Jesus failing and continuing to try over and over again, admitting that they were wrong because the disciples are the ones who were wrong and they're the ones who tell the story. And so we know the story because they continue to tell us that they were wrong and they didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they do tell us that. And if it is referring to the disciples, but it's not according to their extra great behavior or extra great insight, if it's only according to just the fact that they were with Jesus and they remained with him, or even, even that they didn't do to the end, but they were in relationship with Jesus, if that's the only thing it's talking about, then really it could expand to everyone that Jesus knew and loved, which is the whole world. And uh, not everyone in the world had a personal relationship with Jesus, but I mean, I think that's, that's what the Holy Spirit and being the body of Christ and all of that is about, that Jesus loves the whole world and the Father has given him those who will just continue to spread his love out throughout the world. And so that could mean the disciples. It could also mean Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the Roman centurion and the, all the people Jesus healed, the demoniac, the blind man, the lepers, the woman who was bleeding for, what, 18 years, a long time, all of them, all of those people that he has had a relationship with will go, the woman at the well, all of them. They'll keep going and going, and, and the circle of love will keep spreading. And of course, that's what we're meant to do, too. They were yours, and you gave them to me. That's all humanity is God's. And all humanity is now under the authority of not the big military leaders, not the generals, not the kings and presidents and people who rule with power and exclusion. All the world is now under the authority of the one who died in solidarity with the most vulnerable and the most poor and the most misunderstood and the most condemned, the whole world. 
is under that authority, which is really the authority of love. Yeah, it's it's almost it's another way that the New Testament that Jesus subverts our normal use of language. This is the most non-authoritative authority that you could think of. Exactly. <laughs> it's just the flipping of everything when Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first and that's how you get quote authority is by mm-hmm. being the last. That's what Jesus models for us in this passage, I think. Mhm. Exactly. There's so much of Jesus saying, not on behalf of me, but on behalf of you to God. And the way that Jesus identifies with God is to point beyond himself, which is so much the opposite of our human instinct to say, Either God loves me because I am so powerful and this is what God has done for me. So I am the authority because God loves me the most and has given me all of this power. Like that's the way that that the divine right of kings has been interpreted and things like that. You know, humanity's way is to make ourselves in rivalry with God and strive for all this power for ourselves so that we can lord it over others. That's been the way of the world and the way of people. And Jesus's way of identifying with God is to continually point back to God and not draw the attention to himself, but when attention comes to him and he says, this is how I'm like God, it's in how he's serving and how he's loving and how he's dying. He doesn't say, I am like God because I am big and powerful. He says, instead of making himself to be a God by accruing power to himself, he empties himself. And that's how he's like God. And that's just a whole new model for all of us. Yes. And he does it so that we can participate in the divine life, which is what Jesus says at the end. May they be one as you and I are one. And so Jesus, this is the whole point of Christian spirituality going way back uh, to the very early church, whose formula for why Jesus, why God became human in Jesus is so that we all may participate in the life of God with one another as Mm -hmm. revealed, as the father is revealed through Jesus, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that we can love one another with this radical self-giving love that Mm -hmm. Jesus reveals who God truly is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's open to all of us. And the way to get there is to recognize that it's open to all of us and not be in competition and about stepping on others to get ourselves up, but to know that we all participate in the divine life together. And when we serve each other, when we live into the best of ourselves, that's when we're also helping each other to be the best we can be, seeing the most in each other and and building each other up like that. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Adam. And friends, that is it for this episode of Jesus Unmasked. Join us next episode as we explore fire, fire, fire. Fire, fire, fire. No Beavis and Butthead? Okay, all right. I'm not gonna, I don't even know the voices to do them. Jesus Unmasked is produced by the Raven Foundation, where we talk about faith and mimetic theory. Special thanks to our editor, Rhea Dickerson. 
Uh, you can catch up with Rhea on depthsofechoes.com. Check out more of our work at ravenfoundation.org. You can connect with Raven on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with your friends or your enemies because Jesus calls us to love them too.